chapter 13. That's where we'll be at tonight. You can go ahead and start the sermon recording as well. So, um, I bet if I said uh, Buddha, some of you would have some thoughts. Some of you wouldn't. You're like, I don't know, I've maybe heard that guy before. Uh, in 483 BCE, Buddha, also known as Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, I I'm getting his name mixed up, sorry. Um, he passed away, 483 BCE. And this is um, his last words to his followers. This is what he said. He said, behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Tonight, we're, we're closing out the journey through Hebrews. It's sad. It's exciting at the same time. And we aren't sure if what we're going to read tonight were the last words the, the writer of Hebrews got to say to his congregation or not, we don't know. Um, but we do know that these are the closing words of this amazing letter. Uh, and um, how different are these words compared to Buddha's words? It's shocking. Uh, we're going to see that tonight together, that um, this exhortation um, of salvation and of encouragement and a reminder of the gospel, because the message of Christianity um, is salvation. It's a message of salvation by grace alone. It's a, it's a message of salvation and forgiveness and of sanctification and fellowship and peace with God that only comes by grace from and through Jesus. Nothing that we do. We can't earn it. Back in January, actually the first day of the year, we started this study through Hebrews. And if you want to know something really awkward and really weird, um, is driving down the road in Andrews and um, listening to a sermon uh, that Rob was preaching and then seeing Rob pass by you in his truck and give you a weird look. And you're like, this is strange. Um, but I, I got to go back and listen to um, the beginning, uh, the intro to, to Hebrews and uh, and, and it was just fascinating to, to think about how much we've learned from the first chapter all the way to where we are now. And maybe you've noticed over the course of this journey that we have used the benediction that we're going to read tonight at the end of a lot of our services. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, and I don't know about you, but like growing up in church, if you hear the word benediction, that's a kind of a churchy word. You're like, I don't know. I mean, I know I've heard the word, but what does that actually mean? Uh, benediction is a, a final prayer. It's a, it's a blessing, if you will. It's, a, it's parting words that a pastor would give to a, a people uh, meant to inspire and encourage, send them off with hope. Um, give them a, it's a declaration of confidence in God. The word actually means um, uh, good word. So he's imparting this gift of, of grace and mercy to his people. Uh, and so most of the, new, uh, the letters in the New Testament actually end with a benediction. Um, but none of them are as theologically dense as this one. In just a few verses, it contains so much. There are massive Christian doctrines in verses 20 and 21, which we're going to touch on 
tonight. In chapter 1, the letter to the Hebrews starts with a focus on Jesus. And here tonight we see he ends with Jesus as well. And we're going to see how it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all throughout. At the beginning of of the study, when Rob was preaching through uh, chapter 1, he encouraged all of us in the church to read through, just sit down and read through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and read through this letter in one sitting. I hope that you've had the opportunity to do that a couple times, if, if not just once. Um, if you haven't, I encourage you to do it after tonight. It, uh, it really gives us a solid picture, a well-rounded picture of what the author's intended purpose of, uh, of encouraging the body of Christ to persevere in the faith and that their hope would be firmly fixed on Jesus. And reading through it helps us to see how the author explicitly explains how Jesus is better. And that's been the whole focus of the whole series, that Jesus is better. We've seen how Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is the better king. And so tonight, we're going to wrap it up. Let's start in verse 20. This is God's word. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts and minds tonight, that as we study your word, Lord, that you would grant to us understanding, that you would grant conviction where we need to be convicted of sin, of idolatry, of where we have not been pleasing in your sight, where we have not persevered, where we have taken our eyes off of you, Jesus, where we have been hostile towards you. We praise you for the gospel of peace. We praise you for the grace that you give us in Jesus. We praise you for your mercies that are new every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All right, so I think one ironic thing that he says here in the closing is I've written to you briefly. And you're like, it's August. We've been studying this, you know, for more than half the year. But it really only takes less than 60 minutes to read the entire letter. If you sit down and read all 13 chapters, it's less than an hour. If you read it out loud even, and you can read faster if you read it quietly. Um, So what I want to do is I want to give you a three-minute recap Um, And what I did was I just went through every chapter and picked out where he was focusing on Jesus, all right? So this is a three-minute outline, if you will, of uh, of Jesus in Hebrews. Here's Jesus in Hebrews. Jesus is superior to angels. God's best word is spoken in Jesus. God's word testifies to Jesus' greater honor. We shouldn't neglect salvation revealed through Jesus, Jesus became like his brothers in every respect to destroy the power of death and become a merciful and faithful high priest. 
Jesus was tempted in every way as us and is able to help us in our temptation. Jesus is superior to Moses and worthy of greater honor than Moses. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is the founder of our salvation, our captain, our champion. Jesus satisfied God's holy wrath and atones for our sin. Jesus is ruler over God's house. Only Jesus provides the assurance we need to have right standing before God. Jesus' exodus is greater. His rest is greater. He's greater than Joshua. Jesus is the essential incarnate word. Jesus is faithful, tempted, but did not sin. Jesus is our great high priest who sat down in the real holy of holies. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation, honored the Father, and feared God more than man. Jesus' grace is greater than my disobedience. No one can snatch genuine sheep from Jesus' hand. Jesus is the anchor of our soul. Jesus is our great high priest forever. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Jesus is the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace. Jesus needs no successor because he has an indestructible life. Jesus is our everlasting intercessor. Jesus is seated because his atoning work is finished. Jesus has all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Jesus is our perfect pastor. Shadows vanish in the pure light of Christ. Jesus is the reality of the new covenant. Jesus is our representative, mediator, advocate. Jesus came into the world to do the Father's will. Jesus' blood purifies us, and his presence with the Father means access for us now. Jesus' death, resurrection, and current reign gives us confidence. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Jesus is the substance and foundation of our faith. Jesus is our ultimate example of faith. Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is the ultimate example of living a holy life. Jesus' blood sanctifies us. Jesus gives us joy by his spirit. Jesus never changes. He cannot change. He is immovable, trustworthy, true, steady, forever. Now, that's a lot about Jesus, right? And we could just stop right there. Like, earlier in the week, what, after I got done reading that, I had church by myself. I don't know if you ever, you ever read something or just dwelled on something and meditated on something, and then you end up clapping and singing by yourself. It looks kind of weird to people on the outside, but like, I mean, it's unreal. It's unreal when you, when you look at the focus on Jesus. Clearly, the author had a laser focus on who Jesus is, on his person and on his work. It's super, super important. And as the author said in verse 22, he wants his audience to bear with this word of exhortation, this word of encouragement to persevere in the faith, focused on Jesus, to not lose sight of Christ. So let's spend the remainder of our time looking at verses 20 and 21 in these massive doctrines. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. One verse, so much in one verse. The God of peace. What an incredible name. What an amazing title, right? This tells us so much about our Lord. It also tells us a lot about us. We are all born enemies of God. 
apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Our sin is outright and just blatant rebellion against God. And in our sin, we are declaring war against God. Pastor Richard Phillips said this, the message of Christianity is not that we must do God's will and then we can be at peace with God. We can never do his will until we first receive his peace. You do not have to earn or negotiate peace with God, but only to receive it through his son, Jesus Christ. That's good. That's a good word. Right? We, we've talked often about this word, peace. And we, we talked about and explained shalom. Right? We talked about that in our Genesis study as well. Like the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which means wholeness. But that's not the word that's used in this verse because this is written in Greek. And the word for peace in Greek is irene. Now, Zach's not in here to correct me if that was wrong, but I think that's right, which means it's almost identical in meaning um, to the Jewish shalom, but here, here's, a, here's a great definition of it, and this is from the Blue Letter Bible. It says, the peace of Christianity means the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. Man, satisfied, content, tranquility in Christ. That's peace. That's a peace that a lot of people don't know. That's a peace that we need to share. Right? The God of peace has preached to us the gospel of peace, that through Jesus we can be anchored to the throne of grace. That is good news. Right? And we know that the Apostle Paul, right, we, he knew what it was to not be at peace with God. Right? If anybody was a great enemy, blatant, outright, in his face, enemy of God, and at war with God, it was the Apostle Paul who was Saul. He was trying to destroy the church. He was trying to kill people. He did kill people who preached Jesus, talk, talked about Jesus, preached Jesus from the Old Testament, right? He's trying to des destroy the church and anybody who's preaching the gospel of peace. Yet the God of peace intervenes and transforms this man from a man who is an enemy to a friend. And that's what the gospel of peace does. That's what the God of peace does. And later, this same dude, the Apostle Paul, would write this to the believers in Ephesus. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, verse 14. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and he came and he preached peace to you who were near. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of peace to a people who are at war with God. 
It's a message of peace to a people who are at war within themselves. It's a message of peace to a people who are at war with other people, with one another. Because that's what the gospel does. It brings reconciliation and peace vertically between us and, and God in a relationship that we can have with him through Jesus. But it also brings peace horizontally in relationships with those in our sphere of influence. And this God of peace, it says in verse 20 of Hebrews 13, this God of peace brought from the dead our Lord Jesus. And the reason we can have peace with God is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is a massive Christian doctrine, right? The resurrection of Jesus validates Jesus' sacrifice and affirms our relationship with him. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. We would not be, up, I wouldn't be up here preaching to you anything of hope. You would not hear any hope, any words of peace from at any funeral if we didn't have the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus, it says in verse 20, is Lord. And Lord means that he's master, that he's the master, that he is supreme in authority. That if, you know, we know if we read the Gospels, Jesus raised people from the dead, right? He raised people from the dead. But Jesus didn't have anybody raise him from the dead. He woke up by himself. He came back from the dead by himself. And we should probably listen to him. I want to listen to somebody who came back from the dead, right? We need to listen to what he says. He rose up from the dead. He lives today. He's alive today, embodied on the right hand of the throne of God the Father, right? He is like no other high priest before him. There's never been anybody like him. So a question that I asked was, who raised Jesus from the dead? Because in the scriptures, there's a few different things, but there's still continuity. Listen to this, Romans 6, 4. We were, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In Acts 2, 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The apostles preaching the gospel, eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ. They saw him bodily. They touched him bodily. They saw the, the holes, the scars in his hands and his feet and in his side and fell at his feet and said what? Lord, my Lord and my God. But in John 2, 19, so we know the father raised Jesus from the dead, but it's Jesus said in John 2, 19, Jesus himself destroyed this temple, talking about his body, I'll raise it up in three days. That was a, a prophecy that he fulfilled. And then later, John 10, 18, Jesus himself said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. But don't forget the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the scriptures are pretty clear. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? The resurrection was a Trinitarian work of God that's critical for our faith. And it means victory for us over sin and death. Right? It means peace for us right now. It means everlasting life. 
because the God of peace accomplished this through Jesus, the great shepherd. And isn't that a great title? Look at verse 20. The great shepherd. Jesus is our chief shepherd. We need a shepherd, right? We, human beings, all men, women, boys, and girls, are given the title sheep. We are sheep, which is nothing new. This is Old Testament stuff, right? Psalm 103, know the Lord. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We're his sheep. Sheep also are dumb animals. You, have you ever been around sheep? Have you ever seen sheep? Right? They're really stupid, and they stink, and they need help. They need guidance. They're aimless. They are helpless without a shepherd. It's an appropriate analogy for us as human beings. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. This Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. The great shepherd. The, the author of Hebrews is talking about the great shepherd of the sheep became the sacrificial slaughtered lamb in our place. The lamb of God shed his blood to establish the eternal covenant. The everlasting covenant. Al Mohler said he did this. He established the everlasting covenant in order for us to have a relationship with him, to demonstrate his glory in the salvation of sinners by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This new covenant, this has been one of the main themes of the entire letter of Hebrews that we've been exploring for the past eight months. Throughout, he has contrasted the old covenant with the new covenant. He's demonstrated very exquisitely how much better the new is compared to the old. And on the importance of the new covenant, established by Jesus' blood, being everlasting, I couldn't do better justice to it than Charles Spurgeon, so I'll just read this. The covenant of grace is the oldest of all things. It is something, it is sometimes a subject of great joy to me to think that the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, the covenant of grace is older than the covenant of works. The covenant of grace had a beginning. The covenant of works had a beginning, I'm sorry. The covenant of works had a beginning, but the covenant of grace had not. And blessed be God, the covenant of works has an end, but the covenant of grace shall stand fast when heaven and earth shall pass away. That's good news. That's the gospel. We don't have to work to earn our salvation. We can't be good enough. We can't earn salvation. The covenant of works doesn't work, but the covenant of grace, that had no beginning. It's got no end because the God of peace, the living Lord, the chief shepherd keeps covenant with and for his people, which leads us to verse 21. All of this, everything we've talked about so far, equips us with everything good that we might do his will. 
God equips the church with all that we need in order to live in alignment and accordance with his will. Who equips us? The God of peace. How are we equipped? By the blood of the everlasting covenant. We can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it of our own accord. We need help. And that's why it says he is working in us. You see that in verse 21? He's working in us. God works in us so that we are pleasing in his sight. I don't know about you, but I often don't feel pleasing in his sight. I don't feel like I'm pleasing to him, right? We are only pleasing through Jesus Christ. We cannot be pleasing in his sight apart from Jesus. That's why it's good news that when you do put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're united with Christ so that when God looks at you, when the Father looks at you, he looks at you with glasses that are covered in his blood, in in the blood of his son, He looks through gospel lenses at us. He doesn't see you. He sees your identity in Christ. We can only be pleasing to God the Father through Jesus. And that's why every other religion in the world is of man. But Christianity is of the Lord. Every other religion in the world is a works-based religion. It says... Work hard, do better, be better, earn your way. Maybe you'll be able to earn salvation. But the byproduct of that, the result of that, no peace. No peace, no tranquility of soul, no assurance of salvation, no ultimate hope. Christianity, on the other hand, is a grace-based religion that says what you can't do, Jesus already did. Jesus did it in your place. He did it in my place. So receive Jesus' finished work. He finished it. That's why he said it's finished. Before he died, it's done. The work that the Father sent him to do, it's done. And salvation is by grace alone, trusting in Jesus, our living Lord. And that's why Hebrews ends In verse 25, with grace. Grace be with all of you. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Peace, a relationship with a living God. We're saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. We're sanctified by grace. We're secured by grace. And the gospel of peace has, the God of peace has preached to us the gospel of peace. Man, that's such good news. That through Jesus, we're anchored, we're tethered to the throne of grace. That even when his children take their eyes off of Jesus and try to run away, guess what happens? We always come back. Because nobody and nothing can snatch his sheep out of his hand. I sometimes struggle with the thought that his grace is greater than my disobedience. And how could God be pleased with me? Because I mess up, right? But he's a good heavenly father. And he 
doesn't get mad quickly. He doesn't get easily angered. This was not in my notes, but I feel like it's applicable. So um, a couple nights ago, I was kayaking with my youngest son out of Nanahala Lake. And um, we were fishing, and he, um, we were moving from one area to the other. And I don't know why I gave him the best fishing pole with the best lure, but he dropped it. And what happened to it? Soom. Right? Gone. And for some reason, um, I wasn't really mad. I didn't get really mad. I was frustrated for sure. Right? But I was like, that was a lot of money. And it's just gone. And he acted like it's not a big deal. You know? Because <laughs> he doesn't understand. He can't comprehend that. Right? But and I thought about this later. And I was like, man, like, I being an evil father. That's what the scriptures say. If, if we, being evil fathers, earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to our sons, how much more our heavenly father? So if I didn't automatically bust out in like anger and berate him, you know, and yell at him, and man, me, how much more does my heavenly father not get mad at me when I mess up? if you're in Christ, all because of Jesus. So may we heed the message of this word of exhortation. This is an incredible letter. The author continually has called us to an active and courageous response to persevere in this pilgrimage of faith. Forging forward, we need to have our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus, our great high priest of this new covenant. Because glory belongs to Jesus forever and ever. So a few questions before we close. Are you at peace with God? Do you have tranquility of soul? Are you living in his grace? Are you living out your identity in Christ? Are you worshiping Jesus? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are you running this race of life, of faith towards Jesus. I want to close by reading a poem from my favorite missionary. His name was C.T. Studd. I think it's a great name. If you haven't had kids yet, or if you're about to have a kid, you should name him C.T. Studd. It's a great name. Um, he, was, he's, he wrote this in the early 1900s. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, 
each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Yes, only one life. Only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's why Romans 11.36 ends this way, and this is how we'll close. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being a God of peace. For speaking peace to your enemies as all of us were and are apart from Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in the room who has never trusted in you, Jesus, who knows they have no tranquility of soul, they have no peace, they have no hope, oh Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes tonight to see their great need for this great shepherd. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy, for it means that we do not get what we deserve, that your wrath has been satisfied by the precious blood of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are our Prince of Peace. And we praise you and we worship you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.